You're listening to Reality San Francisco's weekly podcast. For more audio content or information, please visit us at realitysf.com. Please open to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3 this morning. Proverbs 3. Um, I'm going to read this morning from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 through 26. Also verse 32. And from Proverbs chapter 22, verses 17 through 19. And I'll start at verse 1. I'll read and then we'll pray together. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. Bless you, whoever that was. May God bless you. Um, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them round your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, Submit to him, or in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth, the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves, and as, as a father, the son he delights in. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. For she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you can desire, nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. Her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are pleasant, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Those who hold her fast will be blessed. By wisdom, the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the watery depths were divided, and the clouds let drop the dew. My son, do not, do not let wisdom and understanding out of your sight. Preserve sound judgment and discretion. They will be life for you, an ornament to grace your neck. Then you will go on your way in safety, and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. Have no fear of sudden disaster or the ruin that overtakes the wicked. For the Lord will be at your side and will keep your foot from being snared. For the Lord detests the perverse but takes the upright into his confidence. Pay attention and turn your ear to the sayings of the wise. Apply your heart to what I teach. For it is pleasing when you keep them in your heart and have all of them ready on your lips so that your trust may be in the Lord. I teach you today even you. It's God's word. Let's pray. God, I feel so um, humble to be teaching uh, wisdom literature. Uh, we want to be wise, God. I want to be wise. And as we learned last week, the way that we get to wisdom is through humility. And so I humble myself before you today. We all do, God. Those of us that trust in God and really want to learn from the scriptures today, we, we just kind of come before you and we say, God, teach us. Um, a lot of us are simple, a lot of us are very educated, but we lack wisdom, and we need wisdom from God. And so, God, we need it from you, and we ask, God, that you would give it to us. 
that you would grant us wisdom, that you would show us the way, and that you would keep this sermon from being just another addition of information that we have floating around in our heads. Would you take today's teaching and this text and form it in deep into our hearts? Would you scribe it on our hearts, God? May we walk in the way of wisdom. Anoint me today as, we, as I teach these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Today I want to start with a question. I want to start with a question. And the question is this. What do you want out of life? What do you want out of life? Perhaps you want someone who loves you, someone who cares for you. You want a caring spouse, a companion in life, a person to love and that same person to love you in return. Maybe that's all you want in life. Or maybe you want a good job. I want a good job, but not just a good job. I want a good job that has meaning. One that's not just about money, but has meaning about making a difference in this world. I want to work at something that's making a difference in this world, but it also makes good money. Like, I want to make good money, but I also want to have meaning. I'm not going to sacrifice meaning, but I want my meaningful job to make money. Or you want an apartment that you can actually afford, that you don't share with 14 other people. Or all you want in life is, if you did share with 14 other people, everyone has their own room and bathroom. And everyone says, amen. Like, that's, that's, my, that's, my, that's all I want. Or maybe you want all of the above. Like, I want all those things. And I have another, I have like 10 more things if you want to keep going, Dave. I, I have a lot of things I want. And though that's all good, what all of these have in common is that all these things are just some of the things you want in life. They are things that you want in life. My question was, what do you want out of life? Or another way of saying it, in other words, what is your goal what is your goal for living? And I'm, I'm not talking about the goal you have at your current job. I'm not talking about the goal you've set for yourself in the current project you're working on. I'm not talking about your goal for 2014 or, or some of you overachievers, your goal for the next five years. I am not talking about your goals like that. I am talking about your grand goal of life. What is your grand goal for life? Of life, your life, your life. What is your grand goal? What is the grand goal for why you are alive and why you are living? Many of us have trouble recognizing or even thinking about this question. It's understandable why it's so hard. It's hard because we've never paused to consider a grand goal for living. And it's understandable why we haven't. Our culture doesn't encourage people to think about such things. It actually provides us with an endless stream of distractions so we never have to contemplate our grand goal for living. We make our next goal the next gadget or the next apartment or the next relationship or the next weekend getaway. That's what we live for. We live for the weekends. We live for the weekend getaways. We live for that next thing. And we do that long enough and often enough that there's a strong possibility of you turning 45 years old or 50 years old without ever considering your grand goal for living, without any coherent philosophy of life. Now, why is it important to have a philosophy of life? A friend of mine gave me a book at the end of last year, and this author asked the same question, and this is how this author put it. He says this, why is it important to have a philosophy of life? Because without one, there is a danger that you will mislive. That despite all your activity, despite all the pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you're on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. 
Instead of, instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various babbles life has to offer. Oh my gosh. When you put it that way, that's pretty scary. You're like, whoa, whoa. Like, it's enough to cause you anxiety, like, right now. Like, some of you guys are like, your heart's going, oh my gosh, I think I might have mislived. And I'm like, I'm 17. Like, I feel like I might have mislived in my life. It's enough to make you question everything. Like, did I choose the right career path? Did I make the right decision in moving to San Francisco? Did I wear the right cologne today? Like, everything is questioned. When you think of it like that, it's scary. When we pause long enough to actually think about it, to actually think about it, all of us, all of us, all of us, all we really, really want in life is we want the good life. We want a life that's not wasted. But how do we make sure we won't mislive? I love that word he made up in this quote, mislive. You might mislive. That there's something um, arresting about this word. It, like stops you in your tracks, like don't mislive. How do we make sure that we don't mislive? The writer of this quote proposes that what you need is a coherent philosophy of life. In other words, you need a way of living. A grand goal for living so that when you come to the end of yours, you can measure it up against this said philosophy, the said grand goal, and you can know my life was worth it. Because my whole goal for life was this, and then I lived that way. I lived in this way. I did it. So the question is, the question before us is, what is that philosophy? Last week, we started one of the most popular and well-read books in the scriptures, the book of Proverbs, located in the middle of your Bible. And the writers of this book, which the principal being Solomon, principal writer being Solomon, have their own proposal of what life should be about. They have their own coherent philosophy that they are training us in. And we receive a coherent philosophy in Proverbs and the philosophy of life that the authors, the writers of Proverbs place before us under the inspiration of God is this. Get wisdom. This is the way of living that Proverbs is proposing for, uh, that we would live. A philosophy, a coherent philosophy of life. It's this. From the very beginning, my son, get wisdom. Or we can say since it's written to the church, it was originally used as a training manual. Fathers would train their young sons in the ways of, a way of wisdom. Solomon starting it, and then fathers, and then eventually schools would train, sages would train people in the way of wisdom. But today it's for us. So I would say, my son, my daughter, get wisdom. This is the philosophy that is set before us. This is the coherent philosophy of life, a way of living that Proverbs says to live our life, to be wise. And if you get wisdom... If you get wisdom, it will lead you, it will protect you, it will prosper you, it will empower you, it will enrich you, it will bring you health, it will bring you wealth, it will bring you friends, it will bring you safety. Just look at chapter 3. We just read this. This is what it sets forth. It says you get peace and prosperity in verse 2. It says it will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. It will, people will like you if you get wisdom. That's enough right there. Like I want wisdom it's just because of that one. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Like, well, you'll win favor and a good name. People are going to actually like you. Physical health, verse 8. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. You will get a blessed life in verse 13 and verse 18. It says, blessed are those who find wisdom and those who hold fast to wisdom will be blessed. You get sound judgment. The writer says, Don't, do not let wisdom out of your sight. When you keep wisdom, you preserve sound judgment. You get safety. You will go on in safety. You get sleep. This is huge. When you lie down, you will, your sleep will be sweet. 
this is such, have you ever gone without sleep? And how like insane it is if you go nights, 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 your sleep will be sweet. Security, no fear of sudden disaster. Wisdom will bring you what, into what every worldly philosophy has tried to promise it, its adherence. Wisdom will bring you into the good life. Wisdom will bring you into the good life. Wisdom will bring you into the good life. Proverbs chapter 1 through 9 is an introduction of sorts called a preamble. And the premise of wisdom, the premise of chapters 1 through 9 is this. Wisdom is the path to the good life. So wisdom is the path to the good life. Wisdom will bring you in, but wisdom is the path, the path of the good life. Wisdom is a path. Look at, verse, look at verses 6 and 17. Chapter 3, verse 6 to 17. He will make your paths straight. Do you see that? Verse 17. All her paths, her, a personification of wisdom, all her paths are peace. Wisdom is the path of the good life. Wisdom will bring you into the good life, and wisdom is actually the path of the good life. And not just any path. It's the path of the good life. And what I mean by that, let me explain what I mean by that. Here's a way to explain that. It's not a path to the good life. I'm not saying wisdom is like one of the many paths that you can take, and at the end of this path, you will have a good life. If you take the wisdom path, it's one of many that you, could, that you can go on to get to a good life. That's not what Proverbs is saying. Proverbs is saying this. The path of wisdom is the good life. The path of wisdom is the good life. Does that make sense? So when you get on the path of wisdom, the path that you're walking has a destination, but the destination is not necessarily all at, that important as what the path is. The path is just as important as the destination because what Proverbs says is that you become your own path. Like as you're walking down this path of peace, you become a person of peace. When you're walking down this path of wisdom, you become a person of wisdom. Once you walk down this path of justice, you become a just person. You become a right person. You become a virtuous person. And this is the good life. Once you're on the path of wisdom, you're actually on the path of the good. You're living a good life. Listen, you can have what you think you want in this life. You can have everything that we listed at the very beginning and the top of this sermon. You can have everything you think you want and lack wisdom and it will not be good. One commentator writes this. If we have love but not wisdom, we will harm people with the best intentions. If we have courage but not wisdom, we will blunder boldly. If we have truth but not wisdom, we will make the gospel ugly to other people. And my personal favorite. If we have technology but not wisdom. Listen. You listening? You guys read ahead, didn't you? Stop. Let me read it for you. If we have technology but not wisdom, we will use the best communications ever invented to broadcast stupidity. I could go off on a tangent on this point, but I will not. You need wisdom. We need wisdom. Wisdom takes things like love and truth and justice and charity and honor and wealth and health and even trials and suffering and gives them meaning. Wisdom is better than raw intellect. Wisdom is better than intelligence. You can have brilliance and still mess up your life. 
You need wisdom. You can, still, you can have love and still mess up your life. You need wisdom. You can have charity and still mess up people's life. You need wisdom. Wisdom is better than information. The poet T.S. Eliot said, where is the life we have lost in living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? Information is everywhere. Every time we open up a social media app or a news app, a fire hose of information floods out and we're all drowning in information. We all have too much information sometimes. And I know that a lot of us work in places where information is power and getting information out to the world, but we're drowning in information. We need to know wisdom. What does it mean? Proverbs is not about information. Proverbs is about formation. There is a huge difference. Proverbs is about formation. It's about shaping its readers into wise people who don't waste their one shot at living. Philosophy professor at Calvin College, James K.A. Smith, wrote a book on education. And he called it Desiring the Kingdom. And I love this book. And in it, he describes what real education is all about. Listen to this quote. I love this quote. He says this. Education is not primarily a heady project concerned with providing information. Rather, education is most fundamentally a matter of formation, a task of shaping and creating a certain kind of people. What makes them a distinctive kind of people is what they love or desire, what they envision as the good life. There it is. What they envision as the good life. Or... Another way of saying it is the ideal picture of human flourishing. And education then is a, this is the best phrase of what education is. Education then is a constellation of practices. Wouldn't that make school way more fun if you're like, I'm just going to a constellation of practices? I would go. Like, I'm in on that. I want that. Education then is a constellation of practices, rituals, and routines that inculcates a particular vision of the good life by inscribing or infusing that vision into the heart by means of material embodied practices. I love, 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 love that quote. Now keep that up there for a second. I want to go through this, but I want to overlay Proverbs and what what Proverbs is trying to do with us. This is what Proverbs is doing with its readers, with us. This is what we hope to do over the next several weeks. Let's look at this quote again. Our education in wisdom is not a heady project concerned with providing information. I am not, we're not going to go through Proverbs and give you information about money and information about sex and information about friends and conflict and being neighborly. That's not what Proverbs is about. It's not about information. Our wisdom training class is a matter of formation. What we're trying to learn over the next several weeks is the formation of wisdom inside of us. Deep, deep, deep within us. Proverbs is out to shape and create a certain kind of people. See, once you take in Proverbs and you take it in and take in wisdom literature over and over and over again and walk in its practices and walk in its rituals, you will become a certain kind of people. You will become a wise person. You can't like get wisdom in the sense of like, I'm going to go and buy it, or I'm going to go and learn these three steps to wisdom. Wisdom is a path that you walk in, and you become your path. You become your path. 
It shapes us into the kind of people by a love and desire for the good life, which is God's ideal for human flourishing. So what is set out before us in this book of Proverbs is a constellation of practices, rituals, routines, rhythms that teaches a particular vision of what the good life is by inscribing wisdom and a vision of wisdom onto the heart. This is why in verse 3, the writer says to his son, bind them round your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Get this stuff so inscribed. Walk in the, the constellation of these practices so long that you become wisdom. That there is this almost intercourse between you and wisdom and you guys become one. So the embodied practice of Proverbs is the path of wisdom. Proverbs is saying, here's the good life. It sets out a picture of it for us and then inscribes it on our hearts through our wills by routine and, and ritual and rhythms. So what are they? What's the routine and ritual? What is the constellation of practices for wisdom in Proverbs? Well, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, we see six. Six constellations of practices for wisdom. Six different, different patterns of wisdom. How do we get on the path of wisdom? Proverbs will give us six. You should write these down. They're very important. You can write in your Bible if you write in your Bible. Here they are. They're on the screen. Verse one, obedience, love, trust, humility, generosity, discipline. These are the constellation of practices. This is what Proverbs tells us to walk in. Walk in obedience and love and trust and humility and generosity and discipline. The rituals, routines, the rhythms of wisdom are this. You build your life around this constellation of practices and then you will, this is how you get on the path of wisdom. And once you get on the path of wisdom and you live in this rhythm, you become this type of person. This takes a long time. For some of you in your early 20s. You might not get there until your early 30s. If you do this all day, it's a, it's a rhythm. It's a work. If you're later on in life, you're going to, and some of you that are more mature in here have been walking this path, and you're wise. Some of you in your 30s have not been walking this path, and you're very powerful, maybe even successful, but you're not wise. This is the constellation of practice. Let's look at these real quick. First one, obedience. Look at verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching. Whenever the Bible says do not forget, it's a very po poetic way of saying what? Remember. You're like, oh, I didn't forget it, but did you remember? Well, I didn't remember, but I didn't forget. It was there, just, just there. But it says to call to memory. This, this, this is a poetic way of saying keep it on the forefront of your mind. My son, remember my teaching, but keep, and keep my commandments in your heart. The word for commandments here in Hebrew is Torah, which is the law of God, the scriptures. So this is what it's saying. Get in a rhythm of spending time in the scriptures. Okay, um, Christianity, being a Christian 101, read the Bible. Some of you guys need to hear that right now because you're like, so advanced in your Christianity, like, no, I'm just dealing with ethics and all this other stuff and like what, 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 faith and work and like just read your Bible. You know, I'm just reading this book right now on like faith and work and like read your Bible because I guarantee you most of that book is quoting the Bible and you skim over that part. Like, like John said, and you're like, oh, let's get that part. What does he have to say? It's like the word, 
Get in the scriptures. Read the Bible. Now, to spend time in the scriptures means to allow the scriptures to shape you. And here's the most important part. Not just allow the scriptures to shape you, but to allow the scriptures to over, overrule your own thinking. That's a hard one. You're like, well, you know what? I like the Bible when it agrees with me. You guys kind of laugh because you know that's true. You're like, oh my gosh, you caught me. We love the parts of the Bible that we agree with. Like, oh, the love of Jesus. That's my favorite part of the Bible. <laughs> See, when you agree with the Bible, then your response is not obedience to the Bible. It's just sheer coincidence. It just happens. You're, the way that you live culturally happens to line up with the Bible. You're like, oh, we happen to believe the same thing about money. Be generous. Give to the poor. I agree with that. I agree with the Bible. Well, what a coincidence. Well done. Well, all that's happened is that your, your, your biases have, that you've soaked up from culture happen to line up with the Bible on that point. But the point of Scripture and Christians adhering to the Word of God is that when the Bible contradicts what we think or we want to be true, what do we do? When the Bible talks about forgiving those who have wronged us or about loving our enemies, what do we do? We're like, yeah, we know, but my, you know, I just can't let them run over me like that. Or what about what the, the Bible teaches on sexuality? What do we do then? To obey means you trust God, you trust the God of the scriptures to challenge your most cherished thoughts, beliefs, and feelings. That's what it means to walk, to keep the commands of God. Next, verse 3, love. It says, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them round your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Love and faithfulness are two Hebrew words that are always used in relation to God. We'll look at more of that in a second. But the words are chesed and meth. Love and faithfulness. Chesed and meth. And the words are used for God himself. The meaning is that we would bind the character of God, who God is, his faithfulness to ourselves, and we would bind it round our neck and write it onto our hearts. Now what this looks like as a rhythm that's fleshed out is that God's love and God's faithfulness would permeate every decision we make. It would influence our choices and our movements, everything. That obedience to the scriptures wouldn't be this dry intellectual exercise, but we would know the love of God. We would know the faithfulness of God in our hearts, that God is good, that God is love, that God is faithful to us. And we take this love, the love of God, and the faithfulness of God, and we bind it to us even when what he commands us to do hurts. Even when what he does and he commands us to do hurts or it's hard for us or we're experiencing a huge trial or we're in the midst of tremendous suffering, we bind the love and the faithfulness of God to our hearts. Next, trust. I'm gonna have to come back on that one. Let's move on. Humility. I promise I'll come back. I'm not like skipping and going, I don't, wanna, I don't wanna talk about trust. We'll get back to that. <laughs> Humility, verse seven. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. Do you have this, I mean, you might not ever say this out loud. I doubt anyone would say this out loud, but maybe you have this, this feeling down in your gut that you have arrived. I have arrived. If you think you have arrived, congratulations, you have. 
You've arrived in your own pride, and you won't take another step further. You've arrived. You're stuck. I've arrived. Like, well, get, I don't know where you arrived, but you're not going anywhere else. You've stopped growing. You've stopped wanting to be better. You're stuck. But if you want to keep growing, you need humility. We talked about this last week. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Don't think that I know what's best. I know through experience what's best. Even experience, even prudence, even judgment is submitted to the will of God in Proverbs. Like you can weigh every situation, but in the end, you, you submit it to God. You can, you can say, I have these plans, but God directs our steps. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Verse 9, generosity. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruit of all your crops. Now, God has a lot to say about money and wealth, and we'll spend time on this after Easter, but what I want to point out right now is the word honor. Honor God. This word in Hebrew has the idea of weight, of heaviness. It's all, the root word is used for the glory of God. The glory of God's heavy. It's weighty. What this means is that your generosity is rooted in love and honor for God's glory. That all this inner piety of love and obedience has this outward manifestation in worship. That you love God and you honor him with your wealth. That when you give to God, it's not like reluctantly, it's not like, here you go, God, I'm really helping you out today. It's like because of the holiness and the radical nature and the love of God and who he is and the weight of his glory, because of all that, God, here, thank you. Thank you for giving me what I have, for giving me breath and life and the very fact that I have wealth, that I have more than I know what to do with. Thank you for this money. Here, God. In light of your glory, in light of the fact that you are God and I am not, and I think I made this money with my hands, but only because it's the hands that you created me with and my mind. So here, thank you. Honor God with your wealth. It doesn't say just be generous because it helps the whole circle of life go around and everyone's helped by generosity. Yes, that's all true and good. But because of the glory of God, honor God with your wealth. God, here. Next, verse 11 and 12. This one's a hard one. Discipline. It says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves and as, as a father, the, the son he delights in. It's like the last one and this one are total opposites, right? Like honor God with our wealth. The last one is honor God with our wealth. That sounds fun. And the reason why that sounds fun, it assumes you have wealth. <laughs> like honor God, I'm so wealthy. God, here you go. I love you, God. Yeah. I'm like, I'm awesome right now. I'm just rocking. There's so much money. Like you're just blessing my job right now. Here, God, God, it's all from you. That sounds fun, right? No, it doesn't. For some of you, it does. You're thinking about it. It does sound fun. It is fun. But what about when all that you have gets overshadowed by life's hardships? What happens when you don't feel wealthy? wealthy you feel pain. You feel suffer, suffering. You feel trials. See, all the good life benefits of wisdom that I read at the top of our sermon are generalities. Meaning, they can be true sometimes and will be true ultimately. But sometimes this world is hard. Sometimes we suffer. Sometimes people die. Sometimes atrocities happen that don't make any dang sense. Now, I'm not saying that Proverbs is trying to make sense of all the world's sufferings. It's not. That's not what the point of this is here. But there is a part of what this writer is saying is that the sufferings that we go through is God. Sometimes, not all the sufferings, but some of the sufferings that we go through are part of God's discipline. 
We equate discipline to hatred. We equate discipline to anger. We equate discipline to punishment. And it might be because, might, might be because family of origin, the way, the way that we grew up, our fathers, our mothers, the, the people that cared for us, and the way that they disciplined us didn't really care for us. It could be because we've believed our culture that discipline is bad and we just need positive reinforcement, not discipline. But God doesn't believe that. He will discipline us. And his discipline for us is rooted in his love. Now you might not hear that, but hear this. Look at my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Not like some weird father, like I do this and I, and I love you, but wham, like that sort of thing. He disciplines those he loves. And, and this is the thing with God. He disciplines those who are legitimate children. If you're not his child, he won't discipline you. Even though discipline feels like it's the wrath of God being poured out on us and God hates us, it's not true. God's discipline is never punitive. God's discipline for us is never punishment for wrongdoings. And the reason why I can say that right now is because all the punishments for our wrongdoing were given to Jesus on the cross. That's, the, that's what the Christian scriptures teach. God's discipline for us is always redemptive. So when he disciplines us, it's to redeem us. When he disciplines us, it's to take the bad out of our lives and replace that with his good. And it feels hard. It feels like he hates us, but he doesn't hate us. And the writer says, do you want to be wise? Then don't despise the discipline of the Lord. When God disciplines you, no. It's to bring about redemption in your life. And the wise person says, okay, I want the discipline. Because everyone who's a disciple gets disciplined. That's the root word. Disciple, discipline. Do you guys see? Of course you see. You're smart. Every disciple gets disciplined. So don't despise it. Wisdom will help you see trials and suffering differently. Now, this is all pretty heavy. What's holding all this together? What's holding together obedience and love and humility and generosity and discipline? This is a tall order. What's holding all this together? I remember when my mom called me when she was close to graduating from her rehab program. And she called me because she memorized her, first, her very first Bible verse. And she was going to be reciting it at her graduation. And I asked over the phone for a preview. So could you tell it to me over the phone? She said, I, I, I want to, I yeah, I want to tell it to you. And she said, it is this. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now this is a verse that people in rehab get. They get this verse. They understand this verse. And the reason why they understand this verse is because they've tried to do life their own way they realize that they cannot lead on their own understanding. They've tried and it almost killed them. Or they've ruined part of their life or those around them. And so they must, out of necessity, trust in the Lord with all their heart. But what about the rest of us? Maybe 
most of us in here haven't hit rock bottom to that place yet. Let me tell you something that you may not be able to admit, but I'm pretty sure you might agree with, if even silently. You, we, are all high-functioning neurotics. We all have addictions, but we may be those who haven't hit rock bottom yet. And we've, de- we've deceived ourselves into thinking that we should trust in the Lord with part of our heart and lean on our own understanding, or not on our understanding, only when it comes to those things that we didn't get to go to school for or have been trained in, but everything else we can lean on our own understanding. The truth is you're not as smart as you think you are. See, what holds all this together, everything I talked about together, all, everything that is held together by this single verse, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't lean on your own, your own capacities to make life work. Don't lean on your own resources, your own financial resources, your own like, I, I know I can, go get this, I can go get this here and that there. I can lean on the resources of my society. Don't lean on any of that. Lean on the Lord alone. What does that even mean? How do I even do that? It takes trust in God's word when it contradicts you and what feels right. See, how in the world do I trust this when there's most of this that, that, that contradicts me? And the answer is trust in the Lord with all your heart. But I have trust in the Lord and all those good things that you read at the very beginning of the sermon are not my life. I don't, have, I don't, I don't even sleep right. I don't have friends. Like it says I do these things, I don't have any of that stuff. Trust in God. How long? Forever. Because if not in this life, in the next you will. Well, I don't know if I could trust that. Well, it goes back to trust. You have to trust in the Lord with all your heart. This isn't, a, this isn't like buttons. Like I'm not giving you a system here. Like, okay, so if you type in this code in Proverbs, out pops your good life. That's what we want, right? Like, how do I code this? How do I take Proverbs and code wisdom into my life? Like, I don't even know what code means. I'm just saying it. Because <laughs> I know like five of you probably do or something. Like, that's not what this is. Like, you just want a formula. Just want to, like, how do I do this? And then out pops wisdom. That's not what this is at all. All this, all this is trust in the Lord. And sometimes this happens and sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes the righteous suffer. And injustice prevails. That's what happens sometimes in this world. But you know what you do? Trust in the Lord. And you keep trusting. And you keep trusting. And injustice keeps winning and keeps winning and it keeps winning. You keep trusting. You keep trusting. It takes trust in God's love when he calls you to step out and do something that might end the way of life as you know it right now. It takes trust in God to do that. It takes trust in God's way to humble yourself and not be wise in your own eyes. It takes trust in God's provision to honor him with your money. It takes trust in God's care to allow him to lead you through the valley of the shadow of death, through the trials and the storms, because he knows what he's doing with you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. That's what this verse is saying. See, the chief goal in Proverbs is to foster not self-reliance on wise sayings that we can memorize and try to get the right situation in life. The goal is not self-reliance into a list of do's and don'ts. That if I push the right proverb buttons, a good life will pop out. 
We all want self-improvement tips, and we apply them, and we're like, I will get a better, blessed life if I apply these principles. But that's not what the goal of Proverbs is. The goal of Proverbs is this. The goal of Proverbs is to foster not self-reliance, but faith in the Lord. The goal of Proverbs is not to foster self-reliance. Like, oh, I got this figured out. I memorized all the Proverbs on relationships. I'm so wise now. I go, hit this button, hit that button, I'm in. That's not what this is about. It's about fostering not self-reliance, but trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's what this is about. Now, my favorite part of Proverbs 3.5 is the word Lord. Did you notice that on, on the screen and on your, look at your Bible real fast. Have you ever noticed that Lord in Proverbs is in all caps? Like someone forgot to turn caps locks off? Like, and some of us, because we, we read caps locks like loud, we're like, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Like, Lord, is it Lord? Like, what is it? Why, why all caps? But sometimes you read Lord and it's not all caps, right? You're like, why all caps and not all caps? Why is it all caps here? Why trust in the Lord all caps with all your heart? Why all caps? The Lord, all caps, is called a tetragrammaton. Fun word to learn. Lord, all caps, tetragrammaton. And what this word means, this stands for God's personal name. So whenever you see Lord, all caps, at the tetragrammaton, meaning that in the original Hebrew, the words Y-H-W-H were there. That's God's personal name. See, Lord, lowercase, all lo- lo- capital L-O-R-D, O-R-D being lowercase, is a title. Like I'm a pastor, I'm a husband. Um, God is a title. Lord is his name. Yahweh is his name. And Exodus chapter 3, when Moses meets God, God Moses is like, who are you? Like, what should we call you? Who? And he goes, I am. I am what I am. That's not, doesn't really help. I'm like, okay, you are. Hi, nice to meet you. I am or you are. What, how do I say that? Like, do I say I am or do I say you are? And then the Lord gives him a name. Do you, do you see the problem? Like, do I go I am or you are? And so God's like, when I refer to me, it's I am. But when you refer to me, it's you are or Yahweh. You will be. And that, so it says I am or he is. You are. He is and he will always be. Which means that he's, in, he's not changeable. He's, he's immovable. He's the same always. He is. And that's my name. And he gives Moses his name. The Lord Yahweh. Now, in ancient Hebrew, there were no vowels, so it's Y-H-W-H. And the reason why it's not Y-H-W-H in your Bibles is that the translators didn't know how to translate that because no one is exactly sure how to pronounce Yahweh. Pretty much everyone agrees that it's probably Yahweh, but no one's for sure. And because they don't, because the ancient Jews didn't want to use the Lord's name in vain, they just changed it. Like, we're not going to say Yahweh, just in case we're saying it wrong. We'll use Adonai, the Lord. So they changed his name into a title, which is sad because what's going on right here is trust in Yahweh, trust in the, my person. Well, who are you? If you are or he is, then who are you? We have a place in Scripture where God, probably the only place in Scripture, the only place in Scripture where God describes himself. It's in Exodus 34, and it says this. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh. The Lord, the Lord. And this is God talking of himself. Who am I? The compassionate and gracious God. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Love and faithfulness is chesed emeth, by the way. 
bounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, this where it gets tricky and scary for us. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. God says, you want to know who I am, Yahweh? This is who I am. But how does Yahweh forgive iniquity and transgression and sin, but not clear the guilty? That doesn't make any sense. And this question hangs in tension throughout most of the whole Testament. And the mystery of the personhood of God, the mystery of God, is revealed on a dark Friday afternoon during Passover. When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hung on a cross. And there on the cross, the wrath of God, the justice of God, meets the grace of God and the love of God. The faithfulness, the love, and the grace of God meet the wrath and the justice of God on the cross in Jesus. We can trust this personal Lord because he has a name. He's personally taken our sin and our shame upon him. He has personally displayed his love toward us. He has done all this for us. So I'm not asking you this morning to trust in the Lord as a title. I'm asking you to trust in the Lord and he has a name. I'm not asking you to trust in an impersonal force. I'm asking you to trust in Jesus. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And right now that might mean a repentance of the way that you think, a way that you want to live that doesn't line up with God's best. And you might not even agree but today, you bend your will according to his. That's what repentance is. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your understanding. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this book. We want to grow in wisdom. And it starts with humility, Lord. It starts as we humble ourselves before you. And so now, God, as we do that, as we respond to you, may we know your love. May we know your kindness. That God, we are not submitting our wills to some impersonal force or code in Proverbs to get a good life, but the Lord himself, Yahweh. Thank you, God, that you are personal, that you know us. And I pray for anyone here that, that I even right now might be, believe, I believe right now that you might be granting them faith to believe in you to trust in you with their whole heart. I ask, God, that you give them courage. The Holy Spirit, God, that you would draw them to the grace of Jesus Christ. And I pray that in the presence of God, a lifetime of, of questions would be answered. And maybe not even by answers, just by your presence, by your perspective, by trust in you that you would silence the turmoil in people's hearts right now. God, I know that in a room this size, there's probably a lot of us that feel like we might not be on that path of wisdom, and what do we do now? Thank you that we can cry out, Yahweh, Yahweh. You are the Lord, compassionate, full of loving kindness, 
maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, right now we can receive forgiveness. So God, I pray that you would grant that to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I read this in Proverbs, but I didn't get a chance to preach on it. But it says in verse 32, the Lord detests the perverse but takes the upright into his confidence. And the reason why I read that in our, in our reading today is because the word confidence is best translated intimate circle. That God takes the righteous and he pulls them into his intimate circle. Now, there is not one person that on their own is righteous. The intimate circle was this table of communion, was this place that Jesus invited all these people that would leave him and betray him and like deny him and all this stuff, and he brought him around this table, and he brought him around his intimate circle, and not because of their righteousness, because of his righteousness that he gave to them through his death on the cross. And so this is why we go to the table of communion, this intimate circle that the righteous get to be invited to, righteous through the blood of Christ. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is Christ's body given for you, for me, that we would have life. There's power in this. There's life-giving power in this. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this is a new covenant that's not based on the old way. It's a new covenant, a new way based on my blood, what, my performance for you, what I've done for you, and that you come under this. You haven't gotten to this intimate circle through your righteousness. You're going to betray me. You're going to deny me. You're going to leave me, but my righteousness and my obedience to the Father are going to the cross for you. New covenant in my blood. And what we get to do, church, is today, today as we gather and we take communion as a church, we proclaim that Christ has died, that Christ is risen this Sunday, and Christ is coming again. Let's respond to God we would be foolish if we just got up and walked out without doing what God has called us to do. If that's repenting, if that's going up for prayer, if that's kneeling on the carpets in, in humility, let's respond to the living God.